of the portion of Scripture we just read. Romans 1.18 all the way through Romans 3.20. I know that's approximately two whole chapters. I know that's a rather extensive portion of Scripture for us to deal with in one sermon. But I want to make the attempt in an overview fashion simply because it is a unit of thought. This is God's treatment of the universal ungodliness and all-inclusive unrighteousness and characteristic sinfulness of every human individual. Everyone. Including both you and me. What we have here is profound. It is, it is weighty. It deals with the central core reality of man. He, by nature, is evil. And that permeates all that he thinks, all that he does, all that he says. What we have here is thorough. I mean, you understand, it reaches universally to every man, every woman, every child who has lived, is alive, or will live. And what we have here is accurate. This describes our fallen state with startling accuracy, folks. And finally, I would say about it, it's humbling. And it's meant to be humbling. If ever there was a portion of God's Word that strips man of his self-righteousness and self-esteem and self-importance, it's here. It's here. Now, I pondered a number of ways to do it. I mean, how do you deal with two whole chapters and you do it? I, I got to thinking, well, nobody has to work tomorrow. <laughs> no. Then I thought, well, yeah, that might not fly. But, so I, I got to thinking, well, how can I, how can I jump through this? Now, I don't want to be done with it this, this week. I want to come back and look at some other things. But I thought maybe I would take a polemic approach. Now, guys, this is a fancy word for saying this. I want to lay out a statement and I want to consider certain objections that people make towards that statement and defend it. And really, that's what Paul's doing right here in the book of Romans. He is speaking in a polemic fashion. That means he's anticipating arguments against what he says. That's what I want to do. I want to anticipate arguments. Because Paul anticipates many of the arguments that would be made in his day by Jew and Gentile. But, you know, we live in a different day. That doesn't mean to say that some of the arguments wouldn't be different. But people will confront the truths in these chapters by a different set of objections than what Paul has dealt with. Now, he's dealt with them, but he just doesn't, he doesn't go after them specifically in some of these instances. We have the Word of God. We have the book of Romans here. What I want to do, this is basically my approach. I want to make to you some very clear statements in an overview fashion from this portion of Scripture. And then I want to throw at you some objections that people have. And then I want to answer those objections. And I want to do it all really based on what we can pull right out of these couple chapters. I might once in a while 
go to some other places in the broader aspect of Romans or in the broader context of Scripture altogether. That's basically the approach I want to take. So, first, a statement of biblical fact. Now, guys, listen to me. You need to have your Bibles open in front of you. If you don't have a Bible, there's five Bibles up here. Does anybody need one? Okay, everybody's got one. Because you need to have them open. I don't want to convince you guys from my opinions or church positions that we might hold. I want you to see it. This is what God says. This is what we find in the Word of God. My statement I'm going to make to you right now, I'm going to largely pull right out of the material we just read. And so I want you to go to these, these references and I want you to see, yes, what I'm saying is absolutely according to the book you hold in your hands. It's the Holy Scriptures. The inspired Word of God. Now, here we go. When your life is over on this earth, and this present age is over on this planet, God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Look at Romans 2.5. The very last portion. Romans 2.5, right at the end, it says God's righteous judgment will be revealed. That's a fact, right? Everybody sees that. Everybody agrees with it. And that righteous judgment is going to come on an individual basis. Look at the very next verse, Romans 2.6. You see that. He will render to each one according to His works. So it's very individual. It's very personal, this righteous judgment. On that day, God will judge the secrets of all men. Look at Romans 2.16. On that day when according to my Gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. That day of righteous judgment is coming. Every single individual is going to be judged. And not only the things that were done in the light, folks, not only the things that were done where other people saw, the secrets of every man, the things that you and I don't want other people to know about ourselves right now are going to come to light. Every aspect of our lives is going to be brought to light based on that judgment. God will give you either eternal life or wrath and fury. You see that in verses 7 and 8 in chapter 2. You see that there? Romans 2, 7. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, He will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. It's one or the other. Every single individual will fall into this righteous judgment. The secrets of every individual are going to be brought to light on that day. He's going to judge the secrets of men. He says He's going to do it by Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the judge. All judgment has been committed to Him. It is the judgment seat of Jesus Christ in front of which every man will stand and will give an account for every single thing that He has done. You will receive either tribulation and distress or glory and honor and peace. And that flows right out of Romans 2, 9 and 10. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. So, heaven and hell awaits you when you die. And both heaven and hell are forever. That life there, folks, is called eternal. 
And in other places in the Scripture, we see that that destruction and that death, that perishing, is eternal. Furthermore, you and I are born into this world not on our way to heaven, not on our way to eternal life. We are born into this world in a natural condition on our way to the wrath and the fury that's spoken of here. Now, the Apostle Paul says in another book, by nature, we are children, not of heaven, not of righteousness, not of goodness. By nature, we are children of wrath. Our nature is not good. It is evil. Now, you look with me at Romans 3.10. None is righteous. How many does it say is righteous? None. Well, isn't there even one? Not even one. Now, folks, you think about this. It doesn't. It's not even talking about here whether any does good. He gets. He gets to that. He's speaking here about the heart of man. There's none righteous. It's not just that man does evil things. He's saying man intrinsically is not righteous. There's none righteous. It means in the inner parts, there's no good. But he goes on. There's none righteous, not even one. Not even one. Folks, that includes us, you. Now in chapter 3, verse 12, he says no one does good, not even one. So he makes the charge... That man is sinful by nature on the inside. He's not righteous. But also what he does is not good. Because it flows out of the heart. It flows out. What you say out of the mouth flows out of that heart. What you do with the hand, what you think in the mind, it all flows from the heart. The heart is bad. It's not righteous. Everything that flows from it. He condemns man on the inside. He condemns man on the outside. You, now folks, you have to see this. This is universal. This is, this is, it's just a, it's a blanket statement about man. In chapter 3, verse 9, he says, we are all under sin. Sin is like a master. It's like a king who reigns over us. We are under it. And it is over us. We are under it. All of us. All are under it. And God, we read right in the beginning, is already revealing His wrath from heaven against all the ungodliness and the unrighteousness of men. So, what that brings us to is the last part of my opening statement here. So, all men are in need of this great life-giving Gospel in which God's righteousness, which you saw before this portion of Scripture, in verses 16 and 17 of chapter 1, and after it, in verses 21 and 22 of chapter 3, God's righteousness is being held forth. A righteousness that God freely gives to those who are not righteous. And that's what He lays down over, we'll get to it, in Romans chapter 4. This God that inspired this Scripture offers a position of being just before God. He justifies the ungodly. He is offering to sinners a righteousness that He condemns all of not having. There is none righteous, not one. 
And there is a righteousness of God that is being held forth before men. Now, back in chapter 2, in verse 4, we see that all God's kindness, all of His kindness in revealing this Scripture, all of His kindness in the things He does, all of His forbearance and patience is meant to lead us to repentance, to forsake all this unrighteousness and ungodliness and come to Jesus Christ by faith. And you see, this righteousness of God is always set forth in the very context of faith. It is for those who believe, as, as verse 22 of chapter 3 says, for those who believe it's, it's in Christ. Those trusting Him. That's the statement. The Gospel is not mainly about good experiences here. Not mainly about having your problems solved here. It's not mainly about riches and successes here. But about sinners finding safety at the judgment bar of God and glory beyond that judgment. That's really what the Gospel is all about. So, that is the statement. At the heart of this, folks, is Romans 3.9. We have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. The religious Jews with their Word of God and all their privileges are under it. The Greeks with all their polish and education, their culture and their refinement, they're under it. Folks, religion, education, it doesn't deal with this problem of the unrighteousness of man. And they're all condemned. Even the most religious in the world at that time and even the most refined, the most scholarly, the most educated Greeks at that time. All under sin. You know, there's a lot of people today that think you just educate people enough and you take care of the world's problems. He is saying, no! All men are under sin. That is not the solution. They're under the power of sin. They're under the power of sin. Not just occasionally sinning. None does good, folks. Understand, that is a universal statement. None does good. Well, don't they do good some point? None does good. Well, don't, isn't man capable of doing some good things? There's none righteous, not one. Yeah, but, but when, I, when I help grandma out, when I do this thing over, there is none righteous, there is none that does good. No, not one. All are under sin. That is what Paul is saying. We are so slow to receive that. This world out here, they are so resistant to that message. But Paul belabors it. You wonder, why does God inspire Paul to go a whole 63 verses? It's because man is so slow to receive this truth. Folks, I'll tell you this. 1 Timothy 3.15 says, the church of the living God is a pillar and buttress of truth. And this is one of the truths that the church of Jesus Christ must hold up like a pillar buttresses up these great massive highway overpasses out here. We are called to do this. Folks, there is such satanic pressure out here in our world to get people to build their lives on wrong principles and on error. And one of the errors is that man is intrinsically good. And he's not. This is one of the foundational places that you and I, we as a church of Jesus Christ, must stand in our hour, in our day, and defend Yes, they've had to in other ages, but other ages weren't ours. We live in this generation. We live in the midst of a world today. Our responsibility is now. We have to hold this truth up because no one else is. 
If we don't do it, it won't be done. Well, God will have one of His other churches do it. But folks, this is our privilege and our responsibility. One of the most important truths to hold up in the world is that all human beings, even though created in the image of God, are universally corrupted by the power of sin. We're not morally good by nature. We are morally bad by nature unless there is a radical, God-wrought transformation in your life and my life we will be ungodly and unrighteous still. That's a reality. And to die in that natural unrighteous state is to die in Adam. And to die in Adam is to die lost. And to die lost is to remain lost forever. That's a reality. So it's our righteous privilege now in our generation and our duty to trumpet forth that message of total depravity of men in our generation. So, what objections do people have? Folks, of the six and a half billion people alive in the world today, most of them object to what I have just said. Most object. There is only a remnant in this entire world who has ever and who does today agree with the statements. Their objections are many. I can't say them all. But I do want to bring some who... Some of those... One, here's an objection. Now, you guys, you sit there. You hear people. Some of you sit here and are lost. You have objections in your own mind to what I've just said. Brother Charles, I think you said from the pulpit, somebody, somebody, I don't know who that is, but they've said to you, how come when we come here, it seems like we always hear about sin or we hear about hell or what, what was it exactly? Why was I always... Why do we always preach on hell? Why do we always preach on sin? Why are we always going there? Why is You know, there's enough bad in the world already. There's enough negative things. You know, you kind of got the Joel Osteen mentality. Well, we just need to be happy. And you know, we had to have everybody come in here and we need to pump people up. And you know, the world's bad enough as it is. Last thing we want to do as Christians is, is you know, make people feel bad about themselves. And so we just... You know, we want to fill a stadium anyways. And you start speaking about sin, you know half that stadium go away the first week and the other half go away the second week. So, you know, we want to keep the money coming in the boxes so we don't want to talk about those things. But folks, my answer to all that talk is our talk about sin is simply a reflection of the Lord's talk about sin as it comes from the Scriptures. And then I would remind them of this. All that we say about sin and all that God says about sin is bookend by the most glorious news that any man, woman, or child could ever hear. Any. And you have the Gospel. This Gospel of an imputed righteousness. A righteousness we don't have that God, in light of all of our wretchedness, is offering us freely if we will but trust His Son. I, I mean, folks, the fact that by one man's obedience I can be declared righteous in the sight of God and received by Him that's not negative, folks. That is positive. But, 
The problem is, and the thing we have to remind people of, is the gospel of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, simply does not land on most people as overwhelmingly good news. And why? Well, that is until they have some deeper sense of their sinfulness and their hopelessness before God. The problem with the people out here that come in and say that to us is they're not coming in here in an absolutely hopeless condition. Why? Because most men want to proclaim their own goodness. They don't think they need the Gospel. They think in the end, it may go all right with them anyways. Folks, it's because man is so resistant to understanding his depravity that we come back to it over and over and over and over. We want men to see they are liars by nature. They are wicked by nature. They are full of lust and covetousness. They are full of fornications and adulteries by nature. They're given to those things. We want it brought back again and again and again. We want the Word of God bearing witness to their conscience. That's why. We don't do it because we're unloving. We do it because we want them to lay hold on Christ. We want them to have the greatest gladness. The greatest joy. We know most men will admit that they're not perfect. We know that. But that's a far cry from admitting what Romans 3.10-18 says right here. Just look at it. Look at 3.10. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of ass is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And folks, that describes you and me by nature. So that's what we would say to folks like that. Well, of course... The next argument, and this is the big one. Well, I don't think I'm that bad. Very few of us are willing to apply all that I just read right there to themselves. Very few. So, they fail. You see what happens, folks? When there's a failure to ascribe all that to oneself, we don't we don't wonder why after that there isn't this desperate need that they feel for God to do something extraordinary to save them from their corruption and their sin. But the Bible, it comes at us. It is wonderfully plain and even, folks, painfully clear and realistic. It doesn't just let men off the hook. When you don't think you're all that bad, it's not because God has somehow erroneously sized you up. It has to do with a misconception on the sinner's part. The misconception is this. And fix this firmly in your hearts and minds. Sin. Now get, get what I'm saying here. Because this is why people go so wrong in estimating their own wickedness. Sin is mainly a condition of rebellion against God and not mainly a condition of doing bad things to other people. This is why, you know, this is why it's so sad, folks, when people come in and 
they want to argue that they're actually pretty good people and that they really don't need the Gospel. What they mean is this. And I've had some of my friends when I was first saved tell me this. I've had people come in here and tell me this. I don't treat other people bad. I can remember one of my friends saying, I try to live by the golden rule. I try to do things to, to my fellow man, things I would have done to me. And so, they try to live this way. They mean by all this that they try to treat other people pretty good. They, they don't steal overtly. They, they maybe don't kill outright. They don't lie much, or at least think they do. They don't swear a whole lot. And maybe they give sometimes, you know, to the local charity or maybe even slide some money in here. Lost people come and sometimes they give money. And in the end, they feel okay. But that's not the main question. The main question in Scripture is, do you love God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, and with all your strength? That is the real issue. Do you love the Son of God, Jesus Christ? Does your love and passion flow out towards Him? That's really what sin is all about in the Scriptures. Do you love God? God is the most important person in the universe. It's, folks, listen. It is not a mark of human righteousness and human virtue to do nice things for people while you have no love and reverence and passion for God. Sin is first and foremost a resistance to taking delight in the glory of God and finding joy in the person of God. When Scripture says in Romans 3.9 that all are under sin, it preeminently points to man's disdain and for his hatred and for His aversion and disgust for the King of the universe. Not how we treat Grandma. How we treat God. And if you don't believe me, get your faces back in the Word right now and look with me. Romans 1.21 What is the crime? It's not that I forgot to visit Grandma on Sunday. It's not that I, that I slighted the guy at work. It's not that I, I, I told a lie about somebody. It's not that I stabbed somebody in the back. Romans 1.21 says that the ultimate crime of man is they knew God and they did not honor Him or glorify Him as God. And they didn't give thanks to Him. That is the overwhelming crime of man. You see, people measure themselves by the wrong measuring stick. People want to measure themselves by how they treat each other, which, by the way, isn't perfect anyways. But they fail to realize that ultimately the judgment of God burns against mankind for how they slight His honor and glory. Not for how they slight one another. You go on. Romans 1.23 They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and reptiles. Do you see what is said there? It says in verse 25, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator. Their worship came off of God and went to created things. Their honor. They exchanged the glorious God who's fashioned the heavens and let His glory and His handiwork be known unto them. And man, knowing what they could know through creation, said, 
I'm going to suppress that truth. I don't want to know it. In their unrighteousness, they suppress what can be known about the true God. And they give their affections to the created things. That is the crime of man. And even as you move forward, Romans 2.23, Romans 1.30, haters of God. Romans 2.23, you who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. Romans 2.24, the name of God is blasphemed. Romans 3.11, no one understands. No one seeks for God. Romans 3.18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Man doesn't love God, doesn't honor God, doesn't fear God, doesn't acknowledge God, doesn't thank God, doesn't seek God. Not by nature. He doesn't. And you never will unless the God of heaven breaks through in your life, opens your eyes to a righteousness of God that you can only have and is only available because Jesus Christ Himself was made sin who knew no sin And we become the righteousness of God in Him by faith. Folks, that's the only way out of this mess you and I are in by nature. The only way. So, folks, this is what we need to hear today. Because almost all the forces around us urge to think of sin, if we even think of it at all, as an offense against man, not against God. That's the problem. Folks, before you or I go spouting off about any goodness in ourselves, the crime of man all falling short of the glory of God is the real crime. That's what sin's all about. That's what it says in Romans 3. They've all sinned and they've fallen short of the glory of God. We've missed the glory. We don't aim at it. We don't aim at it in our love. We don't aim at it in our affections. You see, folks, our crime is we have exchanged sex and pleasure, alcohol and drugs, money and all the things that man can covet after in this world for the glory of the infinitely holy and glorious God. That is the massive insult that man has committed. That is our crime. And so when people come in and they want to start spouting off about their own goodness, this ultimately is the issue. This is what it means to be under the power of sin. The Gospel is the good news that God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, into the world to set this condition right. He came to rescue us from the wrath of God against all that dishonors God's glory. That's the greatness of this Gospel. Okay, very quickly. I'm going to shoot through the last of these. Because that was the big one. That's, that's where people's problem is. That's why He gave so much time to it. Man is so resistant to this. He needs to see it over and over and over. Some will say, I don't believe in God. I mean, John and I went to the university a couple of weeks ago and a girl came out and said, you know, basically they come out at this point. It's no, it doesn't matter for you to tell me any of that stuff. Because... I don't believe in God. And if somebody comes along with that objection, they say, no, I don't believe in God. Well, you know, you know where that goes. Well, I don't believe in God. So, I don't believe that God wrote that book because if God doesn't exist, then obviously God couldn't have written that book. And if God didn't write that book, then all that you're reading there is just the, the conclusions of some man. And if there are conclusions of some man, 
he could be just as wrong as any other man because all sorts of different men have different opinions. So that could be right, that could be wrong. And so it's really neither here nor there at all. Well, you know what I would say to a person like that? You are doing exactly what this portion of Scripture says you will do. You are suppressing the knowledge of God. And you know what? When somebody says that to us, and, and this just, it just aggravates the atheist to no end. Because there, really, there is no true atheist. That's what Paul tells us here. And it just aggravates them to no end because they say, I don't believe in God. And you can go right here, folks, and you can go to Romans 1, 20 and 21, and it says His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. You know, you say that atheist, God's Word tells me that He has revealed to you enough in creation that you have perceived His existence. You are trying to suppress it, but you know of it. And the very fact that you know so much about it, God puts you in a position where you have no excuse at all. You go to Romans 1.32. Though they know God's decree, it's not only that man knows about God's infinite power, eternal power, and His invisible attributes, he also knows morally about some of the things God requires and doesn't require. It says in Romans 1.32, though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. And Romans 2.15 says, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. Folks, you know one of the things we're faced with? All the men and women and young people among the 1.5 million people of our city of San Antonio, they know God. Scripture says they do. They may say they don't, but it's only an attempt to suppress what truth they do know. It's there. It may be buried. It may be suppressed. It may be distorted. But it's there. It's there. God has left Himself with a witness in the life of every single individual upon the face of this earth. So much so that men are without excuse. Next one. Most people don't believe that mankind is so awfully wicked. My stepfather, he loves to bring this argument. When I try to tell him anything about Scripture, let alone about the depravity, I mean, he goes to every place. Well, the guy who steps in the pulpit in his church has so many doctorate degrees and he knows so many educated people. And after all, we've had, we've had this happen to some people legitimately. I mean, they weren't scoffing. They legitimately have said to us, why should we believe what you guys say? I mean, after all, the newspapers don't say it. The, the movie stars don't say it. The newscasters don't say it. Magazines don't say it. The, the, and most other people who pro, profess to be Christians don't say it. Why should we believe that this ragtag little group of people who can't even find a building to stay in on a regular basis would possibly have the truth? <laughs> and, uh, you know, sometimes because of our little resources and our little giftedness, 
we're, we're looked down upon by people in this world. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, why should they believe us? Well, I would say to them this. Romans one thirty two says that men do believe this. And they know deep down inside that they have done wickedly and deserve, deserve to die for what they have done. Now listen, if people ultimately have a conscience that bears witness to them that they deserve to die for certain things that they do in their life, then you know what? They, they really do have some perception of this. People may walk around proudly with their, with their arrogant heart when they stand here and they want to debate you and they, they're there in good health. But I'll tell you this. I have stood at the bedside of people as they have died. Lost people in my family. I stood at the side, the bedside of my aunt. Now, during her life, she might have rejected this truth. But I'll tell you what. When death has its fingers wrapped around your throat and you are facing eternity eye to eye, that conscience comes home and you know you are in trouble. And I have watched people on their deathbed die and they did not pass out of this world in peace. You can deny it. People can look at these things and say, we scoff on you. Who are you? We despise you. You little ragtag group of Christians. You think you can tell us these things? Well, basically, I come home to this. You know what? All these other people out here may not believe it, but I have a book right here that changes lives. I have a book right here that's attested to by God. God Himself says these things are true. So no matter what every man says, right here in this truth it says, let every man be a liar. I'll tell you what, God is true. And when people come to face God, even before they pass out of this world, when death has them in its throngs, folks, then they don't deny it. Men aren't going to argue in that place. They fear. I guarantee you, Saddam Hussein standing there, all those things are coming back to his mind. He might have wished he lived another life when it came to that point. You can sit there in all your security and all your wealth and all your nice air-conditioned house while you've got help and stay there and say, you know, I despise what that little group of people says, but I'll tell you what, there's a day coming when you're going to be confronted by this and it may be before you pass out of this world. You will be confronted by this. It is a reality. And Scripture tells us, few there be that find it. It tells us later in this book, there is only a remnant. We don't wonder that most of the world does not accept this. You go over into 1 Corinthians, the wise people in this world do reject this thing. And it is the foolish. It is the off-scouring. It is the base people in this world that tend to have the privileges of having their eyes open to God's truth. That's what Scripture says. And we can only praise God that it is so. That we're not on the outside. That we're on the inside. That we're one of God's elect. Our eyes have been opened to our sinful condition. And God has shown us life in Jesus Christ and set us free, delivered us from all of that. <clears throat> you say this is profound. I just don't see it. You know, that's, that's one of the arguments. It's, it's almost that they don't want to argue. It's just that people out there... You know, one of the things is what you guys have to say to me just isn't relevant. It just isn't. It just doesn't really. Folks, we're, we're confronted with that. If I had $10,000 in my pocket and I went to a guy sitting up on one of these bus stops and I pulled out ten grand and I said, I'd like to give you. Hey, that guy would not come unglued. 
people would get all stirred up. You know, some guy finds all of a sudden some beautiful woman's interested in him. Boy, his life is just exciting. But you come along and you tell them about a righteousness of God that can be had by faith. Ah, that's, that's not relevant. In this portion of Scripture right here, Romans 2, 7, 8, 9, and 10, let me just ask this. Is eternal life, is eternal wrath and fury, is tribulation and distress forever, and glory and honor and peace forever? Is that unimportant? Is that irrelevant? Whatever else that portion of Scripture teaches, and it teaches a lot of things, one thing is abundantly clear and immeasurably important for you and me. These passages deal with your eternal happiness or your eternal misery forever. What could be more important? What could be more profound or more relevant or more urgent or more immense or more captivating than your happiness or your misery forever? There isn't, folks. Uh, another argument. You know, this kind of goes back to the first one. You don't really make me feel good about myself when you say this. I don't like it. You know, we are in the self-esteem age when everybody wants to feel good about themselves. We live in a world where self-esteem and self-worth are prevailing gods of our day. But, of course, that's all a mirage. I just ask you guys this. Do you think the Lord intends you to feel good about yourself when He says in Romans 3.12, all have turned aside and together they have become worthless? Do you think God intends us to feel good about ourselves when He says you are worthless? Man can find a multitude of ways for avoiding the issue and softening the indictments of God against him and trying to escape the evidences of his own sinfulness. There are endless ways. Man will admit to a little bit of it. I know I'm not perfect. While not in distancing themselves from ever being broken and humbled by the total devastation of their wickedness. But brokenness and humility is the very gateway to paradise, folks. It is the very pathway on to that narrow way that leads to life. You don't come proud. You don't come arrogant. These truths are meant to break you down. They are meant to strip you. They are meant to put you in a place where you are naked before God with nothing to offer Him. It's not meant to make you feel good. It's meant to show you your disease that you might seek out the great physician for healing. We don't apologize for that because we believe by showing you your cancer, in the end, our hope is you'll be healed. We don't simply want to gloss this thing over so you feel good about yourself for a day or two. We want you to have that eternal joy that goes on forever and forever and forever. Some will say, maybe you hear it, you say these things, all the things we find here. Well, my God's not like that. No. Your God is Basically, we have to agree with them. We don't even argue. We just say, yeah, well, yes. Scripture says right there that you will exchange God for these images that resemble man. See, what they do is they create a, man, a God in the image of man. That's what they do. They basically create a God who 
they can do all their sin and we'll sit back and smile at them and then give them heaven in the end. That's the kind of God they create. And we just agree with those folks. You're right. Your God isn't like that. But we also want to make very abundantly clear, your God is also not the God of the Bible. So, I thought God was loving. This doesn't sound very loving. But wait a second. Isn't there something deeply, deeply comforting about a God who comes alongside man and says, I know your flaws to the deepest level of your being. I know your worst condition. And says, I do love you. And I have provided a way of escape. I have provided a way that you can be made right with me and right with others. Folks, isn't that much more encouraging and moving and comforting and hopeful than someone who will tell you just about anything you want to hear just to make you feel good for the moment? <clears throat> Folks, it's not mean, it's not reasonable, it's not harshness, it's not, the, it's not the words of an unloving God. This is good and it's very loving. Because for all the bad news about my true condition, folks, there's a remedy. And that God who shows us the remedy is showing us His love and showing us a remedy because He didn't have to. He would have been very just and very righteous to condemn us forever. And, and it, this is just the last one. I know there's many more. My life is going so well. I've had people tell me this over and over. Well, you know what? I think everything's okay between myself and God. After all, my job's going well. Just got some new accounts and, uh, you know, things are prospering. I'm in good health. Well, you know what? I was sick the other day. Or I had some, my child was sick or somebody. And I prayed to God and God, God healed them. God helped me. I know everything's good with me. I mean, life is going on great. I know there's no problems between me and the Lord. Wait a second. Romans 2.4 says, Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? God's kindness is meant not to convince you all is well. As God has patience and forbearance with you and bestows, yes, the wrath of God is revealed already. Yes, it's revealed around us in God giving people over to greater and greater sin. Yes, it's revealed in God giving this creation over to the groaning and to the decay. Yes, it's being revealed in our midst as people die around us. We see God's wrath being displayed. But in the midst of all that, there is mercy, folks. And God lets His sun shine even on the unjust. He lets His rain fall on them. He will bring the evil, oftentimes good health and success in business and these kind of things. But it's never meant to lead the sinner to look and say and presume, okay, everything must be well with me and God. It's meant to lead the sinner to repentance. It's meant to show the sinner, look at, look at this. You are corrupt. You are damnable. You are in a detestable shape. But I'm showing you glimpses of my love in what will turn out to be much more vast 
much more fullness of my love that will be showered upon you if there will be repentance in your life. A turning from all this ungodliness and this unrighteousness and turning to my Son to lay hold of a righteousness that you don't have but I require from you. Folks, in the end, every mouth is going to be stopped. Every mouth. Everyone. Whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world be held accountable to God. God ultimately has done what He's done to shut our mouths and to stop all the objections. To stop men from their boasting and to hold men accountable. The mouths that raise the objections against God now will one day be silenced. Every mouth will be stopped. How great. And I was there. And you were there. How great were our boasts when we were lost. How great are the boasts of little men. But every one of those mouths will be shut. Where is God, men say, but they only say it for a short season. All these things I said, they say them for a season. Then they perish and they meet Him and their mouth is stopped and their boasting is silenced. The haughtiness of men shall be humbled, Isaiah says, and the lofty pride of men shall be brought low and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. No mouth anywhere. From the demon-fearing tribes of New Guinea to the masses of the Hindus who reject God in northeast India, the Christ-hating Muslims in Turkey. Folks, their mouths will be stopped. The mouths that raise any objections against God now are going to be stopped. May God give us compassion. Because all men are guilty. Your neighbor at home is guilty. That person in your schoolroom, in your office place, that drives the bus that goes by here, that drives the police car that goes by here, they're guilty. All the Chinamen are guilty. Folks, man is universally undone without Christ. There are many more objections, but no matter what they are, they're going to be silenced. This is what Paul has presented. These two, well, actually parts of three whole chapters to silence our mouths and to lay us humble before a righteous God who is extremely full of compassion and mercy and kindness. And He means to lead men to repentance. And I believe, folks, among these masses out here, that we will take this Gospel of hope and this Gospel of life and of a righteousness of God a justifying God, a God who justifies the ungodly. We take this Word, we hold the cross up before these neighborhoods. In time, we're going to see fruit come forth from this Word. We will. We already have seen the first fruits, but we want so much more. 
The Gospel is the power of God unto salvation. It is. To everyone who believes. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Amen. Lord,